This is episode 32 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And today, we've got an episode for you where we're doing another book. And uh, the book that we decided to read this time is called The Escape from Balance Sheet Recession and the Quantitative Easing Trap, A Hazardous Road for the World Economy. And this was written by Richard Koo. Um, for anybody that uh, is a macroeconomics person, they probably have heard of Richard Koo because he had another book uh, called The Holy Grail of Macroeconomics uh, that came out uh, probably about three or four years before this book. And that book, and maybe, you know what, maybe it was earlier than that. I'm not too sure, but it was definitely a few years before this new book that came out here in 2015. And Richard Koo is really known for his analysis on the Japan economy. And for anybody that listens to us knows that we talk about Japan from time to time about from 1990 clear up to about 2010, the Japanese economy, uh, specifically their stock market, had lost uh, over 75% of its value during that time period. So if you went from 1990 to 2010, you would have saw their stock market go down uh, through a cyclic um, pattern. But uh, over that 20-year period, it had lost 75% of its value. During the last five years, it's gone up just a little bit, but not very much. It's still uh, in a very depressed uh, position. And if you know anything about their debt over there, their debt total debt to GDP is like 500%. It's like astronomically high. So Richard Koo got his start uh, really kind of writing a book that described why that happened. And what's really interesting is this book here, this one that he just finished writing here in two, at the beginning of 2015, this uh, book called The Escape from Balance Sheet Recession and the Quantitative Easing Trap. This book uh, really talks about what's happening in the United States and how it's comparable to where Japan was back in the 1990s and what they were going through. And so it was just really kind of a fascinating read to see that parallel and that comparison. So Ku actually uh, was an advisor. I, I don't really remember what his role was, but he was a uh, advisor to the New York Fed uh, in the United States. And so one of the people that endorsed this book was Larry Summers, who we had talked about on a previous episode. He's the former secretary of the Treasury for the United States. He's a uh, he's the president of Harvard. He's at Harvard right now. And he uh, wrote an endorsement for this book. Uh, Stig, go ahead and read that endorsement for everybody. Richard Koo has been a pioneer in recasting macroeconomics for the current era of financial crisis and potential deflation. Agree or disagree, his work deserves close study in the next decade in the industrial world is going to be better than the last. Yeah, so the, the thing that's really uh, kind of grabs your attention with that is that this book requires close study. And for anybody that's, uh, you know, pays very close attention to macroeconomics, uh, Larry Summers is probably one of the best economists in the entire world. Um, I think that people uh, that are running the Fed are definitely listening to what he has to say. Um, I know whenever we were listening to the Davos conversation in Switzerland this past year, Larry Summers was one of the key people to be talking. So for him to say that this book requires close attention really kind of piques my interest and Stig's interest. And it's definitely something that I think people should pay close attention to. Uh, get, go ahead, Stig. Yeah. And what I've you know, found was really funny is that Richard Koo, he's making a lot of different comments about the people he's meeting. And one of the, the people he's talking about, that's is actually Larry Summers. So he's actually saying, well, Summers wasn't really thinking back in 2008, but then he finally came back to his senses in 2009 and suggested the right thing for the, <laughs> for the Americans to do. So, I mean, having an endorsement for someone, he's actually, <laughs> he's actually, you know, yeah. talking about it like that. I mean, that's, that's, that's really a, a big thing, I guess. Well, I think it says a lot about uh, Larry Summers being able to change his mind and his opinion after seeing some different thoughts out there. And I really think that Richard Koo has this right. And uh, so we'll get into some of those thoughts right now. So um, the book kind of starts off describing what is a balance sheet recession. 
um, because that's the term that he has basically come up with that he had used on his previous book whenever he was describing what was happening in Japan. And so he also uses it again here. And so what he's really saying a balance sheet recession is um, and Stig and I have kind of talked about the mechanics of this in some of the previous episodes. But what's really happening is that you have a, a downturn in the economy. And what you really got going on is you have all the the asset prices, uh, specifically houses and buildings and uh, corporate headquarters, those types of assets, those lose a significant amount of value. So it's on the tail end of a housing bubble or a real estate bubble. And what happens is, is those lose so much value. And so people are in debt. Uh, and it's hard for them to fix that problem. So let's just take an example uh, here in the United States. Let's say you bought a house for $300,000. And back in 2007, uh, 2006 timeframe, if you bought at that price point and then you went through the uh, recession in 2008, 2009, you might have lost almost you know 40% of the value on that house. So if you had a $300,000 house, uh, next thing you know, it might be worth only 250000 or somewhere around in there. And so that's really hard for a person to recover from that. It might even be down in some locations like Las Vegas and uh, Miami, a couple places that got hit really hard. It might have gone clear down to like $200,000. So for a family that would have just taken out a loan to buy that house and maybe they didn't have a lot down, and now the, the husband might get relocated somewhere else, and now they've got to sell that house for an enormous loss. That's what uh, is causing a lot of the heartache for a family. Because now, let's say that they that the house did go down to two hundred thousand, and let's say the family just had a modest twenty uh, percent down on the house uh, whenever they first bought it. So that person might have forty thousand dollars in debt that they now have to pay off uh, as they go and they're searching for another house, and now they've got a rent, and it's just a it's like a compounding impact there, and so. When this happens across the entire country where everybody's got this enormous debt that they've got to try to pay down, that's what he's referring to as a balance sheet recession. Because um, even though that person can go out and now take a loan at 0%, which is where you were at in you know post the 2009 timeframe, you could go out and take a loan for 0%, but no one's doing it. And the reason that they're not doing it is because, A, the banks aren't lending it to them, which is a completely different uh, piece of this. The part that Richard Koo's trying to get at is people aren't taking out loans because they're still trying to pay down the the loss that they had on these large tangible assets from the last recession. Uh, go ahead, Stick. Yeah, and other thing is is really important uh, for you guys out there to understand because you, I mean, you might be thinking, so if he has forty thousand dollar in debt, uh, why is this not a good thing that he's trying to pay off that debt? And it is for like, and on an individual basis, it's it's fantastic that you want to repair your own balance sheet by paying off your debt. The problem is that one man's spending is another man's income, as Riddell used to say. So when the whole country is doing that at the same time, I mean, that that's really the problem with the balance sheet recession. So there is no one to uh, increase productivity or even just to maintain productivity in the country because they're not spending anything, which again leads to more people getting unemployed, less money in the economy. And so we have this bad spiral all of a sudden. So that's really kind of the essence of this balance sheet recession that Ku's talking about is that you have an asset bubble. You have people that lost a lot of the value on very large purchases, like $100,000 type purchases. And so they're trying to repair that debt on their balance sheet, on their personal balance sheet, on their corporate balance sheet. This is on a private level and and a business, you know, corporate level as well. And so they're trying to repair that. And whenever they, um, and until they actually do repair it, they're not going to take out more debt and they're not going to take out uh, more risk in order to grow their business until they pay that down. That's why you see these really low interest rates persist because no one's going out there and lending. In the United States during this last one, which I think is a little bit different than what happened in Japan, uh, you had the Fed mandate to banks that they had to be very choosy with who they're lending money to. And I think that that just kind of compounded the duration of these interest rates that we're seeing. So uh, one of the things that I really want to talk about uh, that Ku does a great job discussing is the difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Uh, so people hear those terms a lot and they might not necessarily understand what the difference between them really is. And I think that uh, I think a lot of people probably think that they're interchangeable, but they are not. So let's talk about fiscal policy. 
So fiscal policy is really government spending. How is Congress um, spending the money, at least here in the states, Congress? How are they spending the money? And so if they're going out and they're doing public work type projects or they're building uh, dams or they're doing things that are spending government dollars, that is referred to as fiscal policy. Uh, When you talk about monetary policy, that's talking about the reserve ratio. That's what the central banks are doing, uh, specifically in the United States. That would be the Fed. What is the Fed doing to lower interest rates, to buy back bonds and all that kind of stuff to spark the economy? And so those two things are got to really, and Ray Dalio talks about this in his video, they have to work hand in hand. They have to work together. So when you're talking uh, fiscal policy, that's Larry Summers whenever he used to work back at the Treasury. When you're talking monetary policy, that was Ben Bernanke during the 2008-2009 timeframe, adjusting uh, the money supply, doing quantitative easing and all that kind of stuff. Now, what Ku says in his book, and I think this is really the key point, is the difference between using fiscal policy versus monetary policy. Ku says that he doesn't think that monetary policy during a balance sheet recession really does too much. And the reason that he says that is because it's kind of like this flash in a pan kind of uh, scenario where it has a really big impact real uh, close to the event whenever you do quantitative easing. But as soon as you do that, what happens is is that you see a lot of that money leave the country and, and go worldwide with other countries that come in with investment and the money just kind of flows right out of the country. So you don't get a long-term impact of that whenever you're exercising monetary policy. Yeah, so what Ku is actually saying is that monetary policy under normal circumstances uh, can solve uh, problems, for instance, like uh, cycles. If you bottom a cycle, you can use monetary policy. Uh, but you, monetary policy, as Preston is saying, is really not a long-term thing, and it's definitely not the solution uh, when you have a balance sheet recession. More or less, uh, fiscal policy is the only solution, and it's a very expensive solution because when the government starts to spend and and clear the tax revenues, which is the main review, is not that big because they have a problem in the society. Then that will build up the uh, the total debt in the uh, in the country. So. You know, no matter how you twist and turn this, there will be a price. And according to Ku, the least painful price, that should be uh, fiscal policy. Yeah. So it, what's interesting then, Ku is a strong proponent of uh, using fiscal policy. So what he's saying, and, and it kind of goes back to the FDR model that they had in the Great Depression, where FDR was trying to uh, increase the the construction of roads and to really kind of improve the, the country by spending a lot of money and, and sparking the economy. And so Ku totally endorses that. Uh, he when he looks at Japan, he says that's the biggest issue that they had for over a decade. All they thought that they could do was adjust the monetary policy, not spend any money on the fiscal side of the house. And all the money was just basically flying out of the country into other markets uh, around the world. Uh, so he's saying that in order for countries to solve this, they need to spend money on uh, projects within the country. So let's take that as an example. Let's say that uh, the United States decides to increase uh, their their military spending, we'll say. okay. So that would be a form of fiscal policy, that they're going to spend more money on, uh, on military, maybe building new military assets. So whenever they spend that money, that money is then given to an American company, and then that American company pays their American citizens that are working for them. And so the money just kind of stays more stateside, and it dwells there longer, as you can see. Now, if they just adjust the reserve ratio and you can now borrow more money, you could have an outside country come in and borrow money within the U.S. And then that money is is being pushed outside of the country. So where this really gets interesting and this really gets challenging is every country around the world since 1971, when we came off the gold standard, has been in a race to print more money through monetary policy. And so they're they're basically trying to devalue their currency in, in each country around the world in order to spark spending because that increases their GDP within their their domestic country. Um, and so that just adds a whole new variable to this that I think is really quite interesting where there's an incentive to just use monetary policy because in the short term, it's going to help that GDP get boosted and you're going to have uh, spending because the, the currency is getting devalued in the country. And I really think that that kind of gets at the root of 
the global competition that's happening right now uh, with this monetary policy versus fiscal policy debate that you're seeing. And it's a very complex problem, as you can see, as we're talking through this, it gets very complicated. Um, but it's something that I think people really got to understand to be successful as they navigate these markets, because if you don't understand it, I think there's a potential for you to really get caught up in the weeds and you're not seeing the overall big picture. And so that's where I really found this book very useful because uh, Ku does a great job describing when you should use this, how you should use it, and basically the, the effects of using it, which not all the effects are really good. And we'll get into that as we go into some of the other chapters here. So let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. So let's quickly just talk about uh, a couple of the different countries that Ku mentions in the book, and that's really the U.S., Japan, and uh, Europe. So in the U.S., uh, one of the things that Ku's biggest concern is, is the amount of quantitative easing that the U.S. used and what the long-term implications of that will be. So did the quantitative easing solve the problem that we had from 2008, 2009? Absolutely. Um, he thinks that, you know, it'll definitely work in, as far as stimulating the economy and getting it back into a position that is functioning. And I think if we didn't uh, take some of the steps that we had in 2009, that we probably would have had something disastrous on our hands. Um, but what Ku, which is, which is a little bit scary, what Ku talks about is whenever you use this much QE, there can potentially be, and we don't really know because no one's ever done something like this before, uh, there could potentially be a major side effect to uh, using so much quantitative easing. So in his book, he has a chart. And in the chart, it shows how uh, if you just let things run its natural course, how it goes down and how it'll come back out and the interest rates that are associated with that overall, you know, 10 or 20 year period. And he would probably argue that that's probably more of what you saw over in Japan because they didn't quite manipulate things nearly as bad as what you saw in the U.S., but in the U.S., what he's what he's showing with this chart is that his prediction is because we use so much quantitative easing that maybe during the next recession or the next pullback that you're going to see uh, long term interest rates really increase. And if you see that happen and you're still in this condition where you have this uh, deflationary uh, pressure still putting pressure on the uh, the GDP within the United States, 
what that impact of long-term interest rates rising will have is that you are actually going to have a very depressed uh, position during the next recession. So that's his concern. He's wondering how that's going to impact us in the long term. And we really don't know. He doesn't really know because this experiment has never been done before. I found it ironic at the Davos uh, talk in Switzerland. That was the name of the basically the convention was uh, how much longer can the experiment go? What was the do you remember what the exact phrase was? It was something like that. Stig, correct. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. But it was but they didn't know. Right. Yeah. Because it was, it was, uh, it was <laughs> something like, yeah, it was something like, let's end this experiment. So you saw a very similar theme with uh, the way uh, Ku is approaching this is I think that he's um, very optimistic in the in the near term with how the, how the U.S. handled things. But I think his concern is really what's going to happen next and what's going to be the the implications of us using so much quantitative easing and the long term impact of that. Um, whenever you look at Japan, uh, you can see that Japan is maybe on the verge of actually coming out of this, but the real problem, and he doesn't, I don't think he really addresses this well in the book. I could be wrong. I want to hear Stig's opinion, but I don't think that he, he addressed it really well on how in the world do they solve this massive amount of debt to GDP that they're sitting on? Like he talks about how it was such a great uh, thing for the the way that they basically emerged out of this. It wasn't really pretty. He does, he does lay out a lot of the issues that they had as far as uh, using monetary policy for too long and not using fiscal policy and, and stuff like that. But he doesn't really lay out the path forward other than it's going to take them 50 years to potentially uh, reduce their debt burden at this point. So that was one of the parts that I, that's an issue I had with the book. But uh, Stig, I want to hear your thoughts on that one. Yeah, so that was also something that you know really puzzled me because I've been looking at the same charts as you, I guess, and you know the the debt in Japan is just enormous. Um, so you know, imagine living in a country where they would be looking at the U.S. and thinking, "Oh my God, if we only had as little as debt to GDP as they had in the U.S., <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's yeah. not a good country to live in," I guess. Well, um, well that's what I found really kind of crazy about in the book was he's he's really pushing this fiscal spending. Uh, piece in order to solve the problem. But in order to use fiscal spending, the government has to take on an enormous amount of debt. So it's like, okay, so what's the next step after that? Like, how do you, how does the country then reduce their enormous debt burden without keeping interest rates at like nothing forever? Yeah, I, I'm, um, I was actually looking for the same paragraph as you, I guess. Like, <laughs> so this is what we should do now. And he's saying, you know, just in a really small paragraph that the solution is probably to have our economy grow faster. Because if the economy grows faster, that's a way of paying out debt. But, you know, to me, it's just really, really hard to see how you can grow the Japanese economy at that speed when you're actually paying off uh, this debt. I guess that was uh, my main issue. And one thing he, he keeps saying is that what we did really good in Japan um, was really to, to do this whole fiscal policy thing uh, where the worst example is the U.S. after the Great Depression. So he's saying back then you actually saw a GDP uh, drop of 33%, which is a lot, of course. And you didn't see that in Japan, actually. You didn't see that at all. And that was because right when the crisis hit, they start spending so much money. They start spending so much money that you didn't see a drop in the GDP. The gap that you saw because people stopped spending and um, companies stopped investing, that was completely filled with, uh, by the government. The only problem is that they just need to incur debt, actually, to, to pay for that. It's funny that you, what you said there, Stig, because you said that in order for them to get out of it, they got to spark the economy, have these big years where they have you know 10% GDP growth. And you're exactly right. That'll get you out of it. But the question, but the thing that amazes me is that's what puts you back in it again. I think that's the reason we're in the position we are today is because we had enormous amount of debt back during the uh, Second World War. And so they adjusted the money multiplier and they created fake growth. Okay, it was it was growth. Everyone during the time for those 30 years would probably say, oh, yeah, that was real growth. But it wasn't real growth. It was an adjustment in the amount of money that was in the system because they changed the money multiplier. Okay, and so that's what put us in the position where we had to come down because you had inflation going out of control. And we had a whole episode where we talked about this. But I think you're right. I think that's how you get out of it. But by getting out of it, you're actually setting yourself up for the next one. And that's where, you know, I. I, I guess as I look towards the next, you know, large cyclic bubble, 
I don't necessarily see that happening because I I feel like by the time something like that would happen, you're going to have this total meshing of the world economies. And I think that you're going to see it's just going to be a different landscape. It's just going to be completely different than what we saw in the last uh, hundred years. But uh, that's a whole nother discussion. That's not something the coup even talks about in the book. So we'll probably get off this tangent and move on to the next thing. Um we briefly touched on this uh, when he talks about this idea of weakening your uh, local currency, your domestic currency, in order to uh, spark growth within your country. So uh, let's talk about this because we've brought it up in passing a few times, but let's just talk about the mechanics of this more in detail. So a lot of people um, have probably heard, well, the, the strong dollar is really going to have a, a poor impact on U.S. Uh, companies here in the start of 2015. That's one of the themes that you constantly hear. And so I think for a lot of people, they might hear, well, isn't a strong dollar really good for the U.S.? Like, that's what I think people would naturally think. But the problem with that is that when you have a stronger dollar, it's very expensive for countries outside of the U.S. to be able to buy products from the United States. And so when that happens, your exports are going to be they're going to get hurt and you're not going to be able to make as much money because you're not going to be exporting nearly as much as you would if the dollar was really weak. And so how countries and countries have been have been, uh, you know, at this for decades at this point, Uh, like I said earlier, back to 1971, when we came off the gold standard, you didn't have the currency pegged to anything. And when the currency is not pegged to anything, you can manipulate that that currency at will uh, simply by increasing the, the amount of money in your system. So whenever you saw the, the massive amount of quantitative easing back in 2009, you saw, and, and, and clear, actually till recently, there's been an enormous amount of QE, and I don't think people really realize this. There was more QE done, I think, through 2013 and 14 than there was uh, done uh, during 2009, and I don't think anybody knows that, and I think that that's one of the main reasons why you saw the stock market continue to, to soar is because you had this massive amount of QE that was actually happening, and it, by then, in the news, no one was really paying any attention to it. Uh, when you go back and you look at the Fed's balance sheet and you look at how they're uh, managing this, it was an enormous amount of money between 2013 and 2014. And so what that does is that devalues the currency, that devalues the dollar. You get an influx of, of uh, investment coming from outside the country, buying up goods and services. And so you have this race uh, amongst different countries. Uh, whenever we played that interview with Larry Summers a while back, that was one of the things that he was talking about. He gave the analogy that when one person in the audience stands up, they're going to see better. But whenever everybody in the audience stands up all at the same time, nobody sees any better and all of your legs start hurting. And this is what he was referring to in that comment was that uh, whenever uh, Europe and now they're doing quantitative easing. So everybody's doing this quantitative easing and we're all in a race to devalue our currency. And the overall impact is everyone's standing up and everyone's legs hurting and we're not seeing any better. And it's just it's it's this compounding issue that you're seeing around the world. And I think that you're you're seeing a lot of people start to talk about it right now. And uh, it's going to be very concerning to see how this actually plays out in the long term. What's the long term implications of everybody standing up and not seeing any better? Uh, And that's where we've got some major concerns. Uh, Go ahead, Stick. No, Preston, I, I thought a lot about this, and, and to all of you out there, uh, the reason why we're really into this is also because we're reading a new book, which is called uh, Currency War. Because uh, just really briefly about that is, as Preston is saying, you know, you can look at this as a war because everyone has an interest in serving their own interests. And I think that's that's really the problem here, because if your goods are cheaper, then you can grow your, your economy through your exports. So that would be like the immediate uh, benefits of doing this. But the problem is that even though we can't predict what is going to happen, because we can never do that with a currency war, what we can predict is that in the end, everyone will be worse off. So, and I think that's really what's really frightening me, and that's why I really don't like the direction we're going in. Is that you know I don't know if if this would be in the short run would be good for the U.S. or in the short run be good for for the eurozone. Um, I don't think I know that myself, but I know that in the long run, if we continue to uh, to devaluate our currency to benefit our own population and not think about the outside world, I know it's going in bad. Uh, because that would completely destabilize the uh, the financial system, which no one, which serves no one really. 
Well, it's going to be funny whenever we do the uh, review of Currency Wars, because we've pretty much talked about all the major themes uh, already in this podcast. So that's going to be a really short episode, Stig. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> all right. So, uh, yeah, that'll be a 10 minute episode that week. But uh, we'll uh, try our best to make sure we uh, find all the things that we missed. Uh, so. Uh, The last thing that we're going to talk about in this episode is really the European situation, because uh, when you look at Europe, it's it's in a completely different situation than Japan or the U.S., simply because you have a conflict of interest in that setup. You've got countries like Germany that are being very responsible with the way that they uh, spend their money. And then in the same organization, the, the EU, You have Greece and you have uh, Spain and you have Italy and you have these countries that are just spending at will. And so there's an enormous conflict of interest between the the countries that are, uh, you know, in that group or in that European Union. And so that's where uh, Koo in his book, he talks about this. And I don't really think that he uh, lays out a good solution at all other than there's a major issue with this setup and I don't see it ending well is kind of the way I took it. Did you uh, read it any differently, Stig? Yeah, he had some he had some interesting uh, suggestions for solutions. He was saying that, again, that the the uh, solution might be uh, fiscal policy. So what what the problem is in Europe is that we have, have all these different economies and we have all these different interests. And what he's suggesting is that you should have a a EU panel of experts that are able and have the authority to authorize a financial stimulus package if the if a country is really uh, you know close to bankruptcy, for instance, like Greece. So you would have like a central panel that has the authority to just spend as much money as required in a very short amount of time, really, to save that country. And, you know, I, I really like this argument. I didn't like it because I thought it was realistic because I don't think it's realistic at all. Um, Neither I do really I. Liked it. I think that's a terrible recommendation, but go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I really like this recommendation because it's it's really a classical um, professor in economics uh, argument. <laughs> like, now he would just, you know, he would assume, so say that we have all these governments they would you know put down a, a completely objective panel and they would have be backed by everyone in the union to do exactly what is needed uh, related to his models so i mean from a somewhat theoretical point of view it might make sense but the problem is that we still have to pay off the debt and uh, the eu has to agree on this and i think that you know that advice is something that just works in theory you had no whatsoever chance to 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 work in real life yeah i totally agree it seems like a very good academic solution that will never work um so you know i think that the discussion for what's happening over in europe is something that is going to be very interesting to pay close attention to and i think that as we're looking at what's going to be the catalyst for the next uh, crash or uh, what's going to spark the the interest of people to maybe start selling the, the market short and taking their money out? I think that when you look at Europe, I think that that has a very strong potential to be that catalyst as you look around and you see what what's going to fall apart first. And I really see uh, the Europe situation potentially being that uh, that catalyst. But it's hard. It's very hard to say. Who knows what's going to be the catalyst? But I guess if I was a betting person, that's probably where I'd place my bet. Um, so at the uh, we had one more economy that, to discuss in the book, and that was really the the sixth chapter, which is China's economic challenges. And the thing that Ku really highlights here is that he thinks that uh, China is in a position to continue to do fairly well into the future, but his main concern is the uh, housing bubble that he feels could potentially pop over there. Um, I know I've seen uh, there was a TV show, um, maybe it was like Dateline or. I forget what which show it was. We'll we'll dig it up. We'll try to find it and we'll put the uh, the video in the show notes if we can find it. But there was a video where they showed entire cities in China that uh, were made that were built and nobody was living in any of the buildings. Uh, so one of the things that they're doing over in China is they're just placing all their money, all the people over there, and investing in real estate. And so there's an enormous bubble of real estate. Now, I also heard that um, some of those cities had been filled. I don't know how they could possibly do that in such a short amount of time. Uh, Their economy is nothing like here in the United States. And to be quite honest with you, I haven't really studied the uh, Chinese economy very much. 
Uh, but I do find it highly fascinating and uh, something that would be uh, really interesting to, to research more. Uh, Stig, go ahead. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com kyle you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things how do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies yeah so i used to have a ton of issues with this and that was until i started using yahoo finance Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash wsb that's all lowercase go to shopify.com slash wsb now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in that's shopify.com slash wsb all right back to the show you know what i really find fascinating about uh the chinese government is that it is extremely flexible and flexible (laughs) <laughs> Please let me elaborate on this. So when they had this this problem, uh, I think it was was it back in two thousand and eight. You know what they did was they were spending so much money. And for instance, you know, as, as president was saying, they were building cities for apparently no use, but they were spending as much as seventeen percent of GDP. I mean, that's that's a lot of money. So yeah. if you're thinking that the U.S. you know did a lot of big stuff in 2009, which they did, you know, this was more than three times as much compared to the GDP they did in China. And they just, you know, did it almost overnight. Uh, and, and Risa Q, he also jokes about saying that this was probably the only country in the world where fiscal policy worked uh, faster than monetary policy. Because, you know, it's it's so easy to agree on because they don't have you know, one party, right? So, so, and they don't have to think about uh, what the population is saying. So, you know, this is def- definitely not my way of saying that communism is good or the one party system is good. 
But Rizikou, he's really remarking that, you know, it, it's really flexible and flexible in China because things can go so fast, even though it's such a huge country. They would just say, well, we need to do this. And they have just, just run a huge deficit one year and then they would just go back to normal. That's, that's quite amazing to observe. Well, what I think is really interesting about that is you think about that enormous investment that they had made uh, relative to the debt that they took on, and it was in a fiscal manner. So all those dollars and all that money and all that infrastructure is still sitting in China. It's not like they just uh, printed some more money and then it immediately you know, flew outside the country to places like the U.S. or Europe or wherever. So um, I think that Ku is really bringing up that point and talking about it in a manner to demonstrate how fiscal policy could potentially have a, a better long-term impact than uh, what a lot of the country, the Western countries are doing with their monetary policy and it being short-lived. And I got I need to say one thing. I know it sounds a bit geeky, but I really enjoy that he kept referring to whether or not the, the governments in those respective uh, regions have read his book or not. You know, he really wasn't shy about telling that. Yes, uh, and then he said, yeah, I, I definitely know that some really smart people in, in China read my book uh, and giving good, good criticism that. And for instance, about Ben Kinenki, he said, you know, so I was sitting and chatting with Ben and, you know, I considered should I give him a signed copy of my book, but then Ben said, you know, I don't need another one. And Ku <laughs> then refers to his own thoughts saying, yeah, but I'm not sure Ben really understood my book. Really? <laughs> there was, I, a, I well, I will admit there was a lot of times in this book where, um, I was ready to throw it across the room because his ego was just reeking out of this thing. But, uh, and you had to, you had to agree, correct Stig? I mean, you wouldn't have brought up that point if you don't agree. No, it was just so much fun. Like, and, and he was basically, you know, saying between the lines that the reason why things are so, that things are so bad in, in Europe is because no one has read his book. I mean, come on. <laughs> How can you say that? Oh, I know. It was kind of funny. It was. Uh, and so I will say this. It was a very good book. I think that he was exactly right with a lot of his recommendations. But it, there was times when it got a little obnoxious with uh, his ego and his writing. But uh, we'll leave that out. We won't talk about that anymore. In, in general, this was a fantastic book. And I think for anybody who's trying to increase their uh, knowledge of macroeconomics and really kind of understand uh, where things are going, potentially, and where things came from, and you're really using Japan as a uh, model for understanding what's happening in the U.S., what's happening in, over in Europe, uh, this is a very good book. And I think that it's going to help you a lot as you're trying to understand this. So uh, we liked it uh, in general. Uh, there was parts that got a little repetitive, but other than that, I thought it was pretty good. Okay, so this is a point in the show when we play a question from our audience, and this question comes from Dave Chen. Hey, President Stig. Just wanted to start off by saying thank you to you guys for all you do. Truly, the information is great. I only started listening to the podcast two to three weeks ago, and I'm caught up on all your shows, and I visited all your websites and bookmarked everything I could. Literally, I have YouTube playlists of Monish Pabrai and Ray Dalio queued up. Preston, I just want to let you know that I grew up in the Pittsburgh area as well and studied mechanical engineering, and I really started getting into uh, investing a few months ago. And I thought, man, I'm just like this guy, except he's a whole lot better at investing than I am. So I actually have two questions for you guys. Uh, you guys provide a great um, bunch of suggestions for books on investing and becoming successful, but you often state that it's important to have a foundation in finance and accounting. Do you have any good recommendations on what the best way to build that knowledge is, whether it be books, forums, or videos, etc.? My second question is because I work in the oil industry. With the current low oil prices and that fuel and energy is typically an expense for most companies such as airlines, do you think that the low oil prices are further stimulating the economy and increasing our economic inflation? Thank you. All I got to say is go Steelers, baby. Hey, Dave, great to have your question. Awesome to know that you're from Pittsburgh. Um, uh, I was flattered by your comments. I don't know if I'm a good investor. I just uh, have a lot of mistakes and uh, experience from learning from all those mistakes. Uh, so you bring up some really good points. I'm, I'm going to address the second one, uh, and then Stig can maybe talk about the first one, because it's at the top of my head here, and I really want to say something. I totally agree with you. I think that these low oil prices are absolutely stimulating the economy. I think that it's um, it's almost like a form of QE in itself that it's it's actually making things persist and maybe uh, stay in a, in this better environment a little bit longer. So um, 
my concern is if these oil uh, prices start to come up, which I could see that happening within a year. Um, you're already seeing the number of rigs uh, decreasing. That's usually your first indicator. Uh, and then, you know, as the supply pulls back uh, and your demand stays persistent, you're going to see that the prices do come up. And I think whenever you see the prices come up, the impact might not be immediate. But um, as, it's, as it persists for a few months, I think that you could see that have a really detrimental impact to the economy, especially if the dollar persists uh, in being very strong. Uh, so, Stig, uh, I'm going to throw it over to you for uh, Dave's first question. Yeah, so um, I have I have a few recommendations. I, I really uh, admire that you want to dig into accounting. I think that's that's really a hurdle that very few people are actually taking. But um, for I have like two books I really like to recommend, and the first one is Reading Financial Reports for Dummies. And they I'm really sorry if you just cursed about the title, but I think that was that's really a great book, and I would suggest that book to everyone in, interested in investing, um, because what I think this book does is that it's really good for getting the right perspective as a stock investor. So, what should you be looking for when you're looking at financial statements? And I think this book is really good at uh, filtering out the noise compared to a lot of the other books that are out there. At least, at least that's my experience. So, for instance, leaders, you would go uh, and and give you an example of a company that has, you know, a spike in revenue, but then shows, well, that's because they're selling out on credit. So that might be a red flag for you. So there's a lot of good tips for for the stock investor. Uh, And the second book is a step-by-step guide to understanding and creating financial reports. Uh, And that's a book by Thomas uh, Edelson. You know, we will make sure to have all the uh, the books in the show notes. Uh, But I think what's really good about that and... When you look at that book as a stock investor, you might be thinking, you know, I really don't learn how to read financial statements. I actually think you do because what that is doing is step by step, as the title is saying, is really telling you how does the different financial statements work together. So what actually happens when you are selling something in the company? How do you read that of financial statements? And I think because it's so simple, it's very simple. I think uh, everyone can really uh, resonate uh, with that book. So I'm going to piggyback off of that stick because for me, my my level of understanding of how the accounting plumbing is, is how I like to refer to it uh, occurs. My knowledge of that increased tenfold whenever I started my own company because I did my own accounting. Um, I could have hired somebody to do that, but I specifically chose not to do that and to do it myself because it was, it was it's amazing how well you learn something when you have to do it yourself. So uh, here I am uh, setting up my own balance sheet. Here I am, you know, uh, taking things off of my balance sheet and moving it over to my income statement. Um, you know, when you're doing that process and you're understanding how it actually works because you're actually changing those accounts, uh, your knowledge and your understanding of it will go tenfold. And so I'm not telling people to just go start their own business so that they can do their own accounting. But what I am saying is, you're not going to fully understand it until you actually put it into practice. Uh, you can read as many books as you want, but until you actually try to nug it out on a piece of paper with pencil, um, you're probably going to have a hard time being able to conceptualize how these things occur. And so that's what I'm really telling people to do is um, maybe set up a fictitious company, maybe uh, make up a, a fake company and you uh, would write it down on a piece of paper. Hey, I just sold uh, 10 barrels of, of hay. Okay. Maybe you're a farmer or whatever. And you'd, you'd write this down and you'd try to figure out well, how would I do an accounts payable? Uh, how would I do a accounts receivable? How would that impact my income statement? Whenever you really start to get into it like that and you understand how you're charging these different accounts, your knowledge and your understanding of this is just going to go through the roof. And then whenever you look at a company like General Electric or Berkshire Hathaway or whatever, you're going to be able to look at those financial statements and it's going to be a real picture that makes sense. And it's going to be telling you something. Uh, you're going to understand how a cash flow statement works. But until you actually get your hands dirty and start playing with this stuff, it's never going to jump off the page at you as as it does for a person who does this for a living or really kind of understands it. So I know that's going to be hard and that's going to be difficult for people to implement. But for the person who does, you're going to have a tremendous benefit over anybody else out there because you're really going to fully understand what's actually going on. 
Yeah, and I don't think it's only about stock investing. In any type of business, having really understanding about accounting and as a private person, say that you own your own house, really to understand how the balance sheet works, the income statements and so on, I think that the knowledge is really uh, invaluable. So I just have a quick remark about what you said about business understanding because the other two books that was really about you know the number crunching. And I definitely thought that when I was graduating, uh, even though there was a, with a degree in economics, I thought there was too much noise out there so what i did was i found a fantastic website and it's completely free by the way it's called buffett's faq and i'm not saying that buffett's you know, point of view is the correct one or shouldn't listen to other people but i think it's really important again to fill out all the noise and just get one very knowledgeable person's uh, perspective and learn from that I think that probably did the trick for me. And then you can clearly expand later on from Warren Buffett and look into his uh, point of view from, from different angles. But I think having a starting point, we have a lot of knowledge uh, and, and really to filter out all the noise. I think that's that's really the, the situation if you're just starting out in investing. I totally agree with Stig. Uh, that, we'll have that link to that uh, webpage up on our show notes. It's Buffett's FAQ. Uh, standing for Buffett's facts. And what that person has done is they've gone and they've pulled uh, from all the shareholder meetings. They've basically captured a, a ton of the quotes and a ton of the questions that he has already answered and put information out on. So it's consolidated in a very uh, thoughtful manner. Uh, it's a place that I go frequently to look up different things. And Stig's exactly right. Warren Buffett is a business genius. He understands what makes businesses work. Um, a lot of people attribute him to a great stock picker, but I would really focus more on how he's been a great business leader more so than anything else. He is not a hedge fund manager. He's not a person who's just sitting there taking a bunch of people's money and, and picking stocks. He is running a business, and that's what really separates him. That's why he can invest so well is because he's a businessman. Uh, and I think that that's where everyone should start is you need to become a businessman first before you become a hardcore investor because I think you're just going to be much better at it if you understand the essence of business. All right, guys. So, uh, Dave, fantastic question. Uh, I'm totally pumped that you're from Pittsburgh, by the way. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'll send you a free signed copy of our book, The Warren Buffett Accounting Book. And hopefully that book will really help you out as well, in addition to some of the uh, recommendations that we made. So uh, great to have you on the show. And uh, for anybody else out there, if you want to record a question and get it played on our show, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. And if it gets played on the air, you get a free signed copy of our book. So uh, great to have everybody with us. We have the best audience. Uh, you guys are so smart. Some of the questions we get, um, we have trouble even answering. Uh, so we just really appreciate that. And we look forward to uh, communicating with you guys in the future. So uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application. 